But uh, hey, I want to ask you a question as we get started today. We're continuing uh, today in our series from Acts. I want to ask you a question. What would you do if you had one day completely free with no obligations? All right, let me just set the stage for you, okay? Uh, You're all set to spend the day at the baseball diamond, but the opposing team's bus breaks down, the tournament is canceled, and you've got the whole day free. What would you do? Or uh, it's 7.30 on a weekday morning, the boss calls boss calls you and uh, power is out at the office, the servers are down, there's no way you can access any information, you are not coming into work today. What are you going to do? Or you're all set to spend the day with another family and one of their family members gets sick and they can't spend the day together and now you've got an entire day to do whatever you want. What are you going to do with those 16 waking hours or so uh, that you have? Let's just take a poll. How many of you have a project that you've been trying to complete that you would want to do if you had a one day free? Anybody? Few of you have projects in the room. Okay, good. How many of you have a hobby that absorbs so much time that you would love to spend an entire day just working on that hobby? Anybody? Okay, a few hobby people in the room. Anybody would just love a day of downtime? I'd just be able to rest. I'd just be able to hang out on the couch, on my bed. Yeah, a lot of good, a lot of resters in the room. Yeah, you're the ones that need that uncomfortable invitation. Uh, How many of you... (laughs) Sorry, I'm not, this is no judgment here, okay? I get it. Uh, How many of you um, would love to spend it with a friend or family members? You have people that you want to spend time with. Okay, good, good. Okay, how many of you would be so overwhelmed by the idea of this free day that you would sit down on the couch and start scrolling through your phone and then you look up 12 hours later and it was starting to get dark. Anybody willing to fess up to that? Okay, a few of you. Good. Thank you for being honest. God bless you. Uh, We appreciate you. Yeah, in most cases though, how we spend our time tells us a lot about our priorities, right? So let me rephrase, let me rephrase the question. Let me ask you something different now. What if you found out you had only one day to live? Now, how would you spend that day? Would you spend it getting your fares in order? Would you maybe travel to a place you've never been able to go before? Now would you spend it with people you love? Or would you still keep scrolling on your phone, sitting on the couch? See, here's the truth. Each of us has only one day to live, right? Today. We have today. We we, we can't live in yesterday. Some of us try to live in yesterday. We can't do that. Some of us would like to think about the future, but we're not promised tomorrow. The only day that we're promised is today. And so today, how we spend today tells us a lot about how we intend to spend our lives. In fact, Annie Dillard, who's an author, not as far as I know a Christian, but she says this, I love how she says this. She says, how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives. And so it's with that in mind that I want to dive into our text today. Uh, If you've got your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone, open them to Acts chapter 14. Uh, And we're in week 15 of our our series called Sent. We've been reading through the book of Acts together. And after this week, we're taking a break for the summer. So we're going to take a break from Acts. And while we're uh, breaking from our reading plan this summer, what I'd like to do is use this passage today to launch us into a... time of spending our time intentionally this summer in investing in a few people around us. We're going to take a cue uh, from Paul and Barnabas in our text today, and I hope build an intentional plan for how to spend our summer. But first, let's review what happened uh, to this point uh, in the book of Acts. We started kind of in Acts chapter 1, which is a great place to start the book of Acts. In Acts 1-8, Jesus is meeting with his 
disciples for the last time, and he tells them this. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then verse 9 says, After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. So when you see that that's the very next verse, you're, you're reminded these are Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven, and our last words carry some weight right? I mean, famous last words are a thing because they're important. Somebody's going to say the very last thing they have to say. You can imagine it's got some weight, and they're wanting somebody to do something about that. So these are Jesus's last words before he ascended into heaven, and I think that charge becomes the launching point for the New Testament church in the book of Acts. But the apostles, when they hear this, they're not quite ready to go to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and so they linger around in Jerusalem and until some persecution happens in the church. We see in Acts chapter 6, uh, the stoning of Stephen, and because Stephen is stoned to death, some of the believers get nervous, and they end up fleeing Jerusalem. In fact, the apostles stay behind, and pretty much the rest of the believers scatter into Judea and Samaria, and the church starts to expand with them. Because of this persecution, the church expands out beyond Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, God gets a hold of a man named Saul, who we come to know as Paul. Saul is a big persecutor of Christians, and um, we come to know him by his Roman name, Paul. And Paul becomes a major church planner in the world, and then he writes letters to other churches to encourage them, to scold them, to correct them, to do lots of things. Um, but with all of these evangelists now scattered throughout the known world, the news of Jesus begins to spread and reaches places like Antioch, which is up in modern-day Syria, just north of Israel. Now, this draws the attention of the apostles back in Jerusalem. Remember, the apostles stayed behind while the rest of the church scattered. The apostles are back in Jerusalem. They hear about things happening in this church up in Antioch, and they want to find out if this good news, these reports they're hearing are true. And so they send a man named Barnabas. And Barnabas goes from Jerusalem. He goes up to Antioch uh, to hear the church there. He meets up with Paul. He meets up with a man named John Mark. John Mark is the one that comes to write the Gospel of Mark, the, the work that we know from the New Testament. And uh, the three of them together set off on what we now know as Paul's first missionary journey. Now, this takes place about 47 or 48 AD, so probably 17 or 18 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, here's where they go. You can find this in Acts 13. Paul did a good job of setting this up last week. And then in the Acts 14, you can see what happens. So they start in Antioch, which is to the far right of your screen up there. Paul and Barnabas uh, and John Mark, are, they leave Antioch, they walk to Seleucia on the coast, and then they set sail for the island of Cyprus. They make two stops there, one in Salamis and one in Paphos, and then they continue on uh, to Perga in Pamphylia, which is now part of Turkey. Now, once they get to Perga, John Mark leaves them and sails back down to Jerusalem, but Paul and Barnabas continue on. They go from uh, Perga and Pamphylia up to Pisidia and Antioch. When you're reading that in verse 14, you may think, why are they going back to Antioch? But this is Pisidia and Antioch. It's a different place. Then they go over to Iconium and then down to Lystra and to Derbe, and they're preaching the word there. They're encouraging. They're appointing elders in the churches there. Uh, they're encouraging the believers. And then that's kind of the farthest point on their journey is Derby, which is up there in modern-day Turkey. If you were to go another foot or so to the right of that on this big screen, you would be in a place called Tarsus. And if Tarsus sounds familiar to you at all, that's because that's where the Apostle Paul is from originally. And so he gets really close to his old hometown, 
but he doesn't go there. Instead, what do they do? They, they turn back around, and they go back into Lystra, and then they go up to Iconium and back to Pisidian and Antioch and on down to Perga. They go over to Attilia, or, or sorry, Italia, um, and they're preaching the gospel there in Italia, and then they sail on back to Antioch. And that's kind of the first missionary journey there, Paul and Barnabas uh, take on that. And then uh, here's what happens as they wrap up their missionary journey. This is the very end of Acts chapter 14. So I've screamed you through 25 verses of Acts 14, and we're going to spend some time in the last three verses. Acts 14, 26 says this, From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Remember, this part of the world, there were very few Jewish believers up in there. There was mostly Gentile population. And then verse 28 says, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, in passing, this seems like a pretty harmless verse, really. Uh, what a what an innocuous way to close out a chapter. Okay, so if we're not careful, we can skip over this and think, okay, they got done with their long missionary journey. They came back to Antioch where they started and they rested. But let's realize that these two men, they didn't go home. They're not home. I already told you that Paul is from Tarsus, which is, again, up in Turkey, up near where they were on their journey. We know Barnabas is from Cyprus, which is that little island um, that they visited on the way into Turkey. So both of these men came, they left, sailed away from their homes, came back down to Antioch. And why did they do that? Well, I think verse 28 tells us what they're doing there. Let's look at that again. Acts 14, 28 says, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, if you've been around Genesis for a while, and uh, if you've gone through our multiply class or our multiply small group material, you may know where I'm going with this already. Okay, but this word that's translated here as stayed a long time is the Greek word diatribo. And that Greek word diatribo means literally to rub off on or to wear away or to get under the skin. If you think about it like a piece of sandpaper on wood and when you rub that sandpaper on the wood, it's wearing that top layer of the wood away. You think about it as like somebody rubbing on your skin really hard. It starts to get warm, right? And you can start to get... Uh, somebody gets under your skin. Now, you may think of that as a, in a negative way, uh, especially moms and dads. If you think these kids are starting to get under my skin, that's not the same thing, okay? It's the same, probably the same word, but it's not in that way. What we're thinking about is a way of we're going to rub our influence off on these people. And so that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. That's what they're going to do in Antioch for the next, uh, we don't know how long, for the next uh, period of time. And it's a very Jesus-like thing to do. And let me show you what I mean by that. If we go back to the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the first part of the book of John, what we see is that Jesus, after he's baptized, he spends 40 days um, being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Then he comes out of the wilderness and he runs into John the Baptist. John is baptizing people along the Jordan River down near Jericho in the south of Israel. And John's got this whole group of followers with him that are helping him baptize. And there are five of those men when John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, that is the man I told you about. He points to Jesus. Five of these men start to follow Jesus, and it's Andrew and Peter who were brothers. They were fishermen. It's uh, Philip and Nathaniel and John, who we come to know as the Apostle John, right? Writes the book of John, writes Revelation, writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Those five men we affectionately call Jesus' starting five. Those first five disciples, they all came from following John the Baptist. 
And so the Bible tells us that what did Jesus do with those men when they started following him? Well, he took them on some trips. He took them up to uh, Cana, where they went to a wedding together. They watched him turn water into wine, perform his first miracle that we have uh, documented in Scripture. And then they came back down to Jerusalem. They ran into a man named Nicodemus. That's where Jesus told him that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. They're with him for that. And then the Scripture tells us in John 3.22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. And again, that word there, spent some time with them, is the word diatribo. Jesus took his followers out into the wilderness where he rubbed off on them. He's taking his influence and trying to make his priorities their priorities. He's trying to make uh, his beliefs their beliefs. He's trying to help them understand his relationship with God so that their relationship can, with God can be just as rich. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas are doing back in Antioch at the end of Acts 14. And so for all of us who are followers of Jesus, if this is not what we're already doing, it's what we need to be doing too. Spending intentional time with a few people who will allow us to have influence in their lives. You know, some of us, I would say many of us, have people in our lives that we hope would come to know Jesus as Lord. But that's kind of the extent of our disciple making, is we're hoping. We're hoping that he comes to know Jesus. We hope that they see something in us that makes them curious about Jesus. But friends, I want to tell you today, one of the best gifts we can give to people we care for is the gift of our time. It's spending time with them. It's, it's rubbing off on them. But I want, to allow you, I, I, I want to challenge you, if you'll allow me, to push one step further. Uh, some of you, I know you're ready for this. You're ready for the next thing. You're ready for that, as Annie calls it, that disruptive invitation. Spending time with people is great, and it's important. It's Christ-like. It's the way that Jesus did ministry. However, if we only ever have fun with people and have surface-level conversations, there's a very low likelihood that they're going to come to know Jesus as Lord, that they'll find their way back to God. And so there's a, an old saying in Christian circles, and it's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And I love this. When I was a baby Christian, I loved this phrase because I felt like it let me off the hook. Um, but it goes something like this. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. And I really did. I liked that a lot because I felt like that was how we're going to make disciples. That's how people are going to come to know the Lord. They're going to look at me. They're going to look at my life. They're going to see something's different about me. And then eventually... There will be something in them that will stir up and they'll go, gosh, I want to be more like him. I, get, I guess I need to get to know Jesus. Um, but that's not a very scriptural idea. In fact, Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so far be it for me to contradict someone like St. Francis of Assisi, who's a legend not only in the Catholic Church but in garden statuary, um, but friends, when it comes to sharing the gospel, words will always be necessary. And so how can, how can we, while spending time with people we care about, how can we add in some deeper conversation about God? In, in other words, what is going to be the spiritual component of these relationships that we have? 
So I want to share with you uh, in just a few minutes what we call the six essential skills of disciple making. Uh, these come from our Multiply training. If you've been through our Multiply class or maybe a small group, you may remember these. Uh, this is something we typically offer a couple of times a year in a small group format. And in that class, we'll remind you that God has a place for you in his kingdom work. And if you don't, uh, we'll put it up here on the screen. Uh, that a place is an acronym. If you have the little handout that when you walked in, it's on there. So you don't have to memorize these. You can take that with you and have it. But that phrase, a place, is an acronym. Here's what it stands for. And I've included that, like I said, in your notes. Uh, the first skill, these are the six kingdom skills here. The first one is abiding in Christ. Now, abiding in Christ is all about our walk with God. Why is that? Why does that go first? Well, uh, how many of you have ever flown on an airplane? You know, when the flight attendant comes on at the beginning and, and gives you all the safety instructions, and they tell you in the unlikely event of an emergency, an oxygen mask will drop, and you are supposed to put that over your head and breathe normally. I don't know how that happens. I've never been in an emergency on a plane. I don't imagine I'll be breathing normally if there's an oxygen mask on my face. But they also tell you this, right? If you're with a small child, if you're traveling with someone that needs assistance, you put on your, what do you do? You put on your own oxygen mask first before assisting others, right? This is how it works in disciple making, that if we don't have a strong foundation in our relationship with God, then when we go to rub off on other people, what, what are we gonna rub off on them? our weak, flimsy faith, right? And so the first thing we want to do is we want to abide in Christ. We want to spend time with God every day. We're going to spend time in his word. We're going to spend time in his prayer. We're going to try to do our best to understand and be obedient to what Christ is telling us to do. That's the first skill in kingdom disciple making is starts with me. I'm going to abide in Christ. The second one, the P in a place is praying for others. We have the great gift of prayer and the ability to know that God hears our prayers when we pray for others. The Bible tells us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and he's interceding on our behalf. The Holy Spirit, when we don't know what to pray or how to pray for people, the Holy Spirit um, prays for us in groans, in words that we can't understand, right? And so we know that on our behalf, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are praying along with us. And when we pray for someone who doesn't know Christ yet, we can have confidence that Jesus is there agreeing with that prayer. Yes, I want them to come to know me, right? And so um, the second thing we want to do is pray. In fact, Bill Bright, who is the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which now we now know as Crew, uh, used to say it this way. He says, the correct order of things is to speak to God about men before talking to men about God. And so we want to, before we ever go try to invest in somebody from a spiritual perspective, we want to be praying for them. The third skill, L, is loving people like Jesus did. We want to love people like Jesus did. How do people feel love? Now, if you've ever heard of um, Dr. Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages, this is something we often apply to, you know, uh, love relationships, like our, our personal relationships, like our partner or husband or wife, but you can apply it to anyone. We all have a love language, a way that we feel loved. For some of us, it might be acts of service. For some of us, it could be words of affirmation or quality time, whatever that is. When you're thinking about investing in others around you, do you know the way that they feel loved? And if you do, you can do something that will help them to feel that you love them like Jesus loves them. And this is where spending time comes in, by the way. When we're going to spend time with people, we're loving them like Jesus did, right? We're, we're diatribo with them. Uh, the fourth skill is applying the word of God to their lives. And this is where it gets a little difficult for people. Because this is that area where we're trying to, I mean, we can all 
if we're abiding in Christ, we can all pray for people, right? We can do that. We can all love people. I think most of us have the ability to love people. But when we talk about applying the word of God to their lives, it's like, how do I take what I know about scripture, what I've learned, and how do I transfer that to somebody else? And especially if I don't feel like I completely understand God's word. Well, this is where we start asking questions. When we apply the word of God to their life, we're going to ask them leading questions, something like, hey, what's God been teaching you lately? Uh, what's something that you're thankful for in your life right now? Uh, how about this question? What's, what's one prayer that you really wish God would answer in your life right now? You know, questions like that can lead us into a deeper conversation where we can really start to assess their spiritual condition and how they feel about God. It's an essential skill. It's an important skill in disciple-making, being able to ask those questions and then, and then dive into Scripture together to look and see what Scripture has to say about those things. One of the great things about... Um, Disciple-making is we don't have to have all the answers because we've got this great gift from God and his word that we can dive into together. Okay, the, the fifth skill, the C, is challenging them to obey. Oh, oh, I don't like this one. Oh, because this is where when we've built that relationship and we see something going wrong in somebody's life, we're going to point that out to them and we're going to challenge them to, hey, here's something that you, guys, you need to see about uh, your life, or I see something that's happening. Do you mind if I share this with you about what's going on? Now, here's what's hard about challenging people to obey. For some of us, it comes very naturally, and in fact, it's the first thing that we try to do in disciple making. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, we are quick, some of us, to focus on somebody's behavior. And especially if it's somebody we have some influence over, maybe it's our kids uh, maybe it's uh, somebody that we're close to, a niece or a nephew. Maybe it's somebody we feel like we have some authority over. We'll quickly point out behavior and talk about how they need to change that, okay? But what this is, as it falls into place as the fifth skill, this is for somebody, if we're abiding in Christ ourselves and we're praying for them and we're loving them and we've been trying to apply the word of God to their lives, then when they come to us for a pro with a problem and they say, how do I solve this problem? This is a place where you can go, can I tell you something I see in your life? Can I show you a place where maybe you're not being completely obedient? And we can do that, and, and, and we've got that out of um, a relationship that we've formed with them. We have that license because we've shown them that we love them, right? And then the final skill, uh, E, is equipping them to reach others. So when we, we do all these things, and when by God's grace, somebody comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior, they find their way back to God, the next thing we want to do is we want to equip them to go do the same thing that we've just done for them, right? hey, I've been investing in you these last months, years, whatever it is. Now it's your turn. Is there somebody around you who needs to find their way back to God? This is all about that prayer we've been praying together as a church uh, since the beginning of the year. You know that everyday prayer we've talked about? God, thank you for saving me. I want to see you do in others what you've done for me. That's what this is all about. So these very quickly are the six skills uh, of disciple making. And again, you've got those on your hand out there. You can take that with you and... Uh, it sounds, as I run through it in about seven minutes, it sounds really simple, right? <laughs> I, I'm going to assure you it's not easy. It's not an easy—the good thing about relational disciple-making is anybody can do it. We all have relationships. If we're following Jesus, this is something that we can do because we have relationships. We have people we care about. We have people that need to grow in their faith, that need to find their way back to God. And because it's relational and we have relationships, we can do it. The, the bad thing about it is it is darn hard work. Um, people are messy. 
lives are messy. People will take two steps forward and then two steps back, and we just got to stick with them through that whole thing. And so just a couple of tips as you practice this. Uh, one is to be humble. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. And so as we invest in somebody, we may feel like we have the answer, and if they would just listen to me, I could change their life, I promise. But we don't know everything. We don't know everything about their situation, so be humble. Two is to be flexible. You can't control everything. Um, any fellow control freaks in the room like me? Yeah. I like that. Um, I can't control everything, and, and disciple-making can be a humbling experience because we can't. We need to be flexible. And the third thing is to be available because you never know when somebody's going to need you. My wife and I had a couple of years, three years, where we invested in this couple right next to us, and we tried to talk to them about God, and they had no interest at all. And we would go home sometimes frustrated in the evening, just thinking, well, at least they know where we stand. You know, that was all we had to offer. But then one day we heard that the husband got arrested and went to jail. And um, I, because I'm a pastor, I had the chance to tried to go see him in jail. So I filled out all the paperwork to go see him. And I, I, he, got, he bailed himself out before I got to go see him. But he heard that we were trying to go see them. And while the rest of the neighborhood was staying away from them because they didn't know uh, what he was capable of, my wife and I were loving on that family. And he came home from jail. And I never forget, he got out of his car and he hugged his wife. And then they both came over to us and gave us big, tearful hugs because we had loved them and we had cared about them. And from that moment on, they were more ready to hear what we had to say about God because they could tell there was something different about our lives. Friends, summers go by fast. They're filled with so much fun and so many activities and so many things. You've got so many choices of how to spend your time, but I wanna encourage you, don't do the spiritual equivalent of spending the summer scrolling on your phone. Like be intentional with your time. And so here's what I want to do. We've got just a couple minutes left. And um, if you've got the handout, since this is the last week in our Acts series before we take this break for the summer, I want to get real practical with you. Uh, on that page, there's a couple of blanks right there where you can see that. And you can write in some names. And maybe as I've been talking to you, the Lord has brought some names or faces to your mind. Now, if you're not a Christian, uh, maybe you're here, you're just checking out church, or you're just, you don't know what you think about Jesus yet, you don't have to do this. Just take a break right? You guys have had, you've already got something good for today, I hope. But for those of us who call, who know Jesus and call him our savior, like one of the ways we can be the most Christ-like is to do the things that Jesus did. And one of the things that Jesus did was spend intentional time with people and to help them grow in their faith. And so um, let's just bow our heads together. You've got that paper in front of you. There's some pens in the seat backs in front of you. You want to grab one of those. I'm just going to give you a minute here. Let's pray. Who, who are one to four people that you feel like the Lord is calling you to invest in this summer. I just want you to take a pen and write some names in those blanks. I'm going to give you a minute here. Now that you've got a couple of names, I want to give you a challenge. Here's the challenge. What can I do to invest in them this summer? 
uh, for, for each person on that list, are there two or three touch points that you can have throughout the summer where you're going to spend some time investing them? Maybe you're gonna get together with them. Uh, it could be a standing lunch appointment or coffee. Uh, maybe you're gonna host dinner in your home or a backyard barbecue or backyard picnic. I wanna encourage you uh, to, to do some backyard parties this summer. Invite some people from Genesis and some people that you don't know or people that need to know Jesus. Hey, if, you're, if you've got three or four names on your list, invite them all over to your house at the same time. You don't have to do this alone. Maybe they can invest in one another as well. But I just wanna give you a moment. Maybe, maybe you're gonna take Annie's disruptive invitation and train to run or walk the half marathon or marathon this fall. Don't do it alone. Invite somebody to come along with you. Run together, Join a, form a running group. But if you're not into running, form a golf group or a hiking group or a you know, poker club or a gardening group or an investing club or just an old-fashioned Bible study. You know, I'm just gonna pause right here. Is there one or two things, maybe three things you can do intentionally? There's a place on that card to write that down. How can I invest in those people this summer? There you have it. There's your challenge for the summer. Now, nothing to it but to do it, right? Uh, you've, got, you've got your challenge. You've got your names. I just want to encourage you to take that card and put it in a place where you'll, you'll be able to see it every day, maybe on your refrigerator, on your mirror, uh, in the front, front page of your Bible, where when you open that up, it's the first thing that you'll see. And remember that there's kingdom work to be done, friends. There are people out there that desperately need to know the love of Jesus. And you may be one of the few Christians that has access to those people. And I just want to remind you as we close why, why we're doing this. I'm not, not here to put pressure on your will. I don't, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, make you feel um, shame for not having done this before. If you do this out of guilt or out of shame, I promise you it's not going to work. The only real motivation is love. That God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That Jesus seeing that you and I were far from him, left a perfect heaven, and he came to a broken earth to live life. And he died a criminal's death on the cross, a death that he died to forgive the sins of me and you. And then he was laid in a tomb, a tomb that was everybody intended to be permanent. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead. If you go to Israel today, that tomb is empty. It's still empty today. And it's empty because our Savior, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he's sitting right now at the right hand of God. And he's interceding on our behalf and he's leading the church. And because of that, we have the promise of eternal life. And if that's the motivation for helping people find their way back to God, friends, it will not fail. Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful that you don't need to use us for your kingdom work, that you could choose to call people on your own, but instead you give us the work. And so, um, Lord, thank you again for disruptive invitations. Thank you that you wanna remind us how much you love us so that we can go remind others how much God loves them. And Lord, I know for some of us, this is really scary. 
it's, um, gosh, it's inconvenient. It's disruptive to our summer. And Lord, we, will, we can only do it because of your great love and mercy for us. And so we thank you for that. Thanks for the reminder this morning that you've got work for us to do. Lord, we want to be obedient to that. We want to spend the summer in an intentional way. Help us to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.